again to Fangraphs Audio. I am Carson Sestouli, Fangraphs contributor on this particular edition of the pod. We appeal to our very learned panel of Matt Clausen and Dave Allen, and we look at some issues in the young baseball season. Topic number one, the Red Sox. What's their current situation, and what do wins in the bank have to do with it? From there, we move on to a topic suggested by a member of our commentariat, Matt B. The question is, is there any reason to ever throw Kyle Blanks a fastball? FX expert Dave Allen has the answer to that. Move on, we look more in-depth at an article by Matt Clausen. We ask the question, Barry Zito, is he a different guy? Finally, Matt Clausen gives us a very subjective game report from his outing at the Rogers Center in a game between the Toronto Blue Jays and his beloved Kansas City Royals. All of this and more white-hot analysis right now at Fangraphs Audio. Once again, to another edition of Fangraphs Audio, the most highbrow, most brilliant baseball podcast on the entire series of tubes. Today we offer you probably the most educated panel we've had uh, in the short history of Fangraphs Audio. Uh, to my right is Matt Colossen, who I believe is a, correct me if I'm wrong, a PhD candidate in philosophy, somewhere, uh, somewhere up there in the frozen north. Uh, yeah, for now. Was that your root beer, by the way, in the background? No, that was somebody else's. Somebody, somebody, whoa, you're drinking with someone else. That was that was not on my end. Well, Matt Clausen, it's good to have you here. Uh, thank you very much. We have another guy who I think is about to be, I think, uh, about to be a doctor uh, very close to this summer. Is no, that no, right? one year, one year out. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, it's very, very sorry to hear that. Um, but uh, well, I could talk to those people up at the uh, University of Michigan. If you'd like me to, but his name is Dave Allen. Dave Allen is the uh, master of the heat map, pitch FX, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's good to have you guys here today. Uh, there will be no Dave Cameron. Uh, he's kind of big leaguing us now that he signed his big multi-year deal with Fangraphs. And if the ESPN news ticker is correct, it appears as though he's out with a lower abdominal strain. Have you guys seen anything about that? This just yeah, typical. Yeah, kidney stones. He's kidney stones. That's right. Yeah, it is. Typical. Well, it's just it's just typical of big time bloggers to do this to work hard, you know, when they don't have any, when when they're struggling, you know. But once they get the big guaranteed contract, they just they just let it go. I that's knew this would happen. That's exactly right, Cameron. Uh, yeah, once again out with kidney stones, maybe a sports hernia. Well, more, uh, more on that as it develops. Well, you know, actually, um, in fact, Mike Cameron is the gentleman to whom this has happened. And this provides one of these uh, all-American all transitions that we're always looking for here on Fangraphs Audio. Because American transitions. All-American transitions. Yeah, Matt Clausen need not apply. I'm American. <laughs> we uh, we are, have witnessed uh, here in the first couple, three weeks of the season what at least I would consider, um, mostly because I read uh, the, the writing of people that are smarter than me, a surprising beginning to the Red Sox, the Boston Red Sox season. Maybe it's due to some injuries to Jacoby Ellsbury, Mike Cameron, etc. Maybe it's the failure of the uh, run prevention strategy that the Red Sox took on. Maybe it's also merely random variation. Matt Clausen, uh, I think you've been following this. What's the dizzy with the Red Sox? Where are they in the standings, and what does wins in the bank have to do with it? Well, wins in the bank was... Uh a post that Dave Cameron did about a year ago, just saying, look, uh, 
we all know that uh, preseason projections don't change after the first two weeks. I mean, not significantly. You say if you have all the same players, the team is no better or worse than they were two weeks ago. However, um, they can win for whatever reason, a, what do you want to call it, a fluke or, or whatever, in the first two weeks. Once they've won those games, they're in the bank. So let's say you have a team, just to come with a very basic example, that's a, uh, a 500 team. After two weeks, they're probably still, uh, true talent, a 500 team. But if they've won uh, 70% of their games, you still think they're a 500 team, but for the rest of the season, those wins are already in the bank. Uh, now, for a 500 team, that might be good news. Uh, so for a team like the Blue Jays, who probably wait, isn't... Wait, wait, uh, is there nerd? Is there nerding happening in the background? Who's typing on these keys? That was quickly me, just to look at the standings again to make sure I had them right. Okay, what are the standings then? Uh, well, in the East, the Rays, uh, Tampa Bay Rays, Nate Devil Rays, are winning. Uh, the Yankees are half a game back because they played one last game. Toronto's three games back, and Boston is six games back of the Rays. Uh, why this is interesting is that uh, before the season, now some people like, I know Jonah Carey will happily say that he picked the Rays to, to win the wild card. So let's just say, let's leave aside the divisional Rays and all that. Say that most people, I, I think, uh, I know I thought the Yankees are the, were the best, and still do think the Yankees are the best team in the, in the, in the AL East, in baseball, and they'll probably still end up winning the division. Uh, but, so what's interesting is that uh, Tampa Bay and Boston are, are pretty close. I thought Boston was the second best team in baseball, and Tampa Bay is the third. That's not an uncommon thing. Uh, but how far apart do you think Tampa Bay and Boston are? I would I would have said two or three games. So even if Tampa Bay and Boston leave aside Boston's injuries, they still have the same players, and while their talent level is still the same, with uh, you know 146 games left in each of their season, do you think Boston Boston would have to be six games better? Over the, and I don't think they are that much better to catch the Rays. So with the Rays wins the bank, even leaving aside the injuries, I think Boston's going to be hard-pressed to catch them for the wild card, assuming that New York goes in and wins. And, of course, same thing would be saying for Boston. So even if Boston uh, still more talented than the Rays, they, they're not so, they wouldn't be so much better that uh, we'd assume they could, they, they could catch them. In fact, you'd have to say Tampa Bay has the edge right now, even if they are... Uh, the less talented team. All right, yeah, yeah, all right, all right, all right. Let's get Dave Allen involved too, so make sure yeah. he doesn't uh, fall asleep. Dave Allen, a couple things here in terms of probability. Where does this put the Red Sox? How do the injuries affect their chances of uh, making up that six-game gap? And finally, uh, perhaps a little bit more subjective here. I know that you are a uh, a native son to the New England area. Um, can you? Would you like to put a um, a freakout factor on the Boston? press and fan base right now somewhere between 1 to 10. Okay, so actually the first thing I want to do is just back up and say that Matt Clausen's uh, explanation was amazing, but I just want to sort of put in a... <laughs> part, part of the the reason that, that Dave Cameron wrote that, and I think this is a really important idea, is it's it helps from a misinterpretation of regression to the mean. So one way, you know, very naively you could say, oh, you know, the Red Sox are going to regress to the mean, and they they played all these bad games, but since they have gone through this bad stretch, then they're destined to, you know, go through a good stretch. They'll get back to to 600, what they should be winning. And so that's sort of like the gambler's fallacy. If you flip a whole bunch of tails, then you're 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 heading for a whole bunch of heads. Um, I thought the generals were due. 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's not how it works. We think that the Red Sox are still a whatever 560 team. We don't think that now that means that they'll be a 560 team at the end of the season, but for the rest of the season, they'll play 560 baseball. And so, I, you know, I just want to put that in there. Um, I don't know, you know, so I guess so that they're six games back, and if you think that they're two games better than the than the Rays in true talent, you could probably do the whole, like, simulated out or Poisson distribution or binomial, however you want to do it. Um, I don't know what you'd get. Maybe that they have, like, a 20% chance of catching the Rays. That's just uh, making it up off the no, top. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah. all we're um, looking for. But, well, yeah, well, I well, am uh, a member of uh, the New England Red Sox Nation, what have you. And it does – I mean, I do think that, you know – People in that area of the country expect the Red Sox to do well, and when they don't, there is some degree of uh, freaking out. Um, and obviously, you know, if uh, Darnell McDonald is your uh, starting outfielder, some degree of freak out is probably warranted. <laughs> yeah, well, I will admit that even as someone who does uh, track the Red Sox, I was a little surprised to see that Darnell McDonald was anywhere near the roster. Yeah, um, and that's one of those. Things. I wasn't. Class- I wasn't aware that I wasn't aware that he existed. <laughs> well, that's just poor form because, in fact, I believe he was the starting center fielder for um, for the Reds last year uh, because I think oh. Willie Tavares was out. I think that if you go back and you will find that at least one of the early season games, uh, you'll find uh, Darnell McDonald's name there. Now, listen, Clausen, from your point of view, using what you know about baseball, and that's that's fine. That's all the information we need. Is this the sort of situation that can make a front office gun-shy? Right, they clearly made a commitment to run prevention in the offseason. And there was clearly some uh, some he- hemming and hawing from the uh, Boston area media and the fan base. Is it, could, it, could this be something that affects any organization uh, in general? Or could this be something, do you think, that might affect the Red Sox specifically? Or are they sort of strong-willed enough internally that they won't let this bother them? Uh, I think Theo Epstein at all are very smart. I mean, they're going to make a ton of money. Uh, and so in terms of in, in that respect, I mean, they're going to make a lot of people angry. Dan Shaughnessy, I'm sure, is thrilled. I mean, this is uh, this is a boon for him. I don't see what be what, what – I mean, he's loving this. But in terms of the front office, uh, uh, I don't think they're going to panic. I mean, they, they've made some – you know, teams make – even smart GMs make sort of dumb – uh, rash panic moves, and you got to understand why. It depends on how serious Theo was about this bridge talk, I mean, and people who follow, and I don't follow Boston media like maybe some other people do, so I can't speak to that about how, how much that was PR and how serious that was. I don't think the fact that Ellsbury and Cameron getting hurt, though, says uh, anything about why this was a bad strategy. You know, I'm, if... Uh, bad luck is more is more the case, and it just happens to be right. right. I'm not sure if with- they... I mean, I'm not sure Jason Bay would have survived a collision with Adrian Beltre any better, you know, although maybe he wouldn't have had the range to be in Beltre's vicinity. So. <laughs> That's a, that is a consideration. Okay, so I think that uh, while we'll, we'll come to no hard and fast conclusions here, let's just say that Boston has not necessarily helped themselves or that they haven't been helped by bad luck, or they haven't been helped by luck. The luck has been bad. They've lost some games, and they have uh, six games to make up uh, you know, at least to get the wild card, and it appears as though they're not necessarily in a position to do that with the talent they have now. Uh, 
that's I think that's fine. I think that uh, that's a, probably a reasonable conclusion to come to. Let's change gears a little bit. Uh, one one uh, one thing that comes sometimes out of these uh, podcasts is that people a actually listen to them and then b have response to the podcast. And this happened last week. User Matt B wrote in the uh, comment section of uh, last week's pod in which we discussed Brett Anderson. Uh, among other baseball players. He said, Carson, I'd like to see an article or podcast discussion similar to Dave Allen's Can Hayward Lay Off Breaking Balls in the Dirt piece? I'd like something along the lines of, is there any reason to throw Kyle Blanks a fastball? My guess is the answer will be absolutely not. Dave Allen, we're going to start with you here. First of all, is there any reason to throw Kyle Blanks a fastball? Second of all, are there players for whom this is the case, you know, maybe besides Kyle Blanks, that they shouldn't be getting as many of pitch A or pitch B as they already are. Yeah, I'm going to have to unfortunately disagree with our commenter and to say, yes, there is a reason to throw Kyle Blanks in fastball. I mean, so if you look at it on a per pitch, on a pitcher basis, if you count a cutter as a fastball, then no non, I mean, no, no non-knuckleball pitcher can throw like fewer than, like, 50% fastballs, or does throw. So if you go and you look through the season, almost everyone throws at least 50% fastballs if you throw in the cutters and you throw out the, the knuckleball pitchers. So, I mean, pitchers just have to throw, it seems, have to throw some level, probably about half fastballs, and because that's the pitch that can sort of, they can get over the plate at the highest rate, or without throwing that many, the, the hitters can just sit on the breaking pitches. So... And then if you look at the other point of view and you say, okay, you know, like Alfonso Soriano can really hit fastballs and doesn't do very well against uh, off-speed or breaking pitches. I think that was a post last year. Yeah, I mean, certainly anecdotally, he, he will swing at it all of the time. And, yes, and, and exactly. So, And even he sees fastballs like 40% of the time or, or about last year, maybe even more than 40%. So, so yes, Kyle Blank will see uh, some number of fastballs as every uh, major league hitter has to. Okay, uh, uh, Matt Clausen. Uh, you know, there there are a couple pitchers out there, and off the top of my head I think of a James Shields who I think uh, is one of those pitchers that we refer to as pitching backwards in that uh, frequently he'll use his, uh, his off-speed stuff in particular, his changeup I think, to set up other things. You know, Dave Allen is citing the fact that Hardly any pitchers do actually throw below 50% fastballs. You know, can you think of any pitchers who've been successful with a different sort of arrangement other than a guy like, uh, I don't know, um, you know, uh, like a Mark DeFelice or, or character, although I guess he threw a cutter, right? Uh, I, yeah, I guess it's hard to think of any pitcher who's thrown, like, all sliders. Can you can you imagine it being successful, or do you sort of trust uh, based, traditional baseball thinking here um, that it's necessary to throw a fastball? I trust traditional baseball thinking there for the reasons that Dave uh, went over. I mean, you have to have something you can get over the plate. Uh, and, and just, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe there will be, there might be some special pitchers. It would be it would be hard to imagine people who didn't do that, who, who didn't throw a, you know, around half fastballs, being anything other than exceptions. And even a guy uh, I've just been posted about on Fangrass before, uh, like Ryan Dempster, who throws a ton of sliders. Uh, 2009 through about 34% sliders, uh, and this year so far it's about the same. Uh, he still throws 
since he's been in the rotation anyway, he's still throw more than uh, half his pitches have been have been fastballs, and his fastball uh, in 2009 anyway uh, wasn't that great according to our pitch type values. He was about a win uh, below average by count his fastball, and he was 20 above uh, according to, uh, by a slider. But uh, yeah, even a guy like that whose slider is just way way better than his fastball still throws half. Uh, more fast more than half the time. I think Edwin Jackson's another example where his fastball just isn't that effective. I mean, I think it's pretty fa- yeah, it's pretty hard, and low nineties, and his slider uh, it does much better. I think I think it was with the slider. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. But again, he throws he throws his fastball at least half the time. Yeah, uh, Dave Allen, off the top of your head, is uh, because it seems anecdotally this would be the case, and having actually been a pitcher granted in the uh, independent school league of uh, the Massachusetts, New Hampshire area. Uh, this may be different, but, uh, it, you know, fastball seems to me the easiest pitch to control. Uh, you do hear occasionally uh, a color guy will say, well, you know, he's not he's not finding his fastball placement. Um, he's actually having better luck with the slider or something like this. And this is actually the case of uh, Colby Lewis's most recent start. Um, he was having some trouble locating the fastball. But is the fastball off the top of your head? Is that the, is that the pitch that's most often thrown for a strike percentage uh, based on percentage? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's the pitch most often thrown for a strike and most often thrown in the, in the strike zone due to the with the pitch FX numbers. And it also it's it's also the pitch that's contact hit the most often. So probably those are related. But yeah. Okay. All right. Well, speaking of uh, some pitch types, um, Matt, you you actually just posted. Uh, you just posted an article today, actually, I think just minutes before we started recording, um, yeah. with regard to uh, a pitcher who, you know, has been much scrutinized, especially since he signed a giant contract in San Francisco. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. He, uh, <laughs> oh, boy. He, uh, but he's a pitcher who, at least from watching him, his curveball certainly has always been most memorable for me. But I actually think that maybe his curveball usage isn't as high as I would guess anecdotally. The, the pitcher in question is Barry Zito. I think he's gotten off to a good start. I want you to tell me uh, how good that is and if if it is uh, maybe a harbinger of things to come or if he's same old, same old. He's the same guy. It's um, sort of an anticlimactic. He has gotten off to a, a great start. I mean, his ERA is under two. This is uh, Friday the 20th, I think, when we're recording. So he may change between now and when you hear this. His, his FIP is uh, under let it be three, known. Is, let it be known. In fact, it's Friday the twenty third. Um, <laughs> That's just in the United oh, States. That, <laughs> in Canada, it's the twentieth. Oh, yeah. the metric calendar. I forgot about that. I know it's the metric calendar. Yeah. Well, we are recording this at uh, seventy four past eighteen. <laughs> so it's uh, sorry, seventy four past eighty one. It's a lot much later than I thought. Um, uh, <laughs> but Zito. You know, the, the, let's start. Let's start with talking about what you're just talking about. Uh, here's a guy who throws uh, doesn't throw that many fastballs. Uh, the heater, let's say the quote unquote heater, at about uh, which sometimes I think touches 87 miles an hour when he really gets pissed, um, but really gets mad at it, or, or wants to bean Prince Fielder in the back or something. Right. <laughs> uh, but, but he, you know, his, his curveball was his famous pitch, especially in his Oakland days. He throws a little bit, uh, a bit. Well, a lot less than he used to, actually. Uh, the height of his powers uh, in the early aughts, 
Right. Uh, you know, the early 2000s, he threw, uh, according to our pitch types, about a quarter of the time. Now it's under 20%. It's about 18%. And he throws his last, uh, in 2009, so far this season, he's, th- he's throwing uh, more sliders. Uh, he used to throw about 10%. Now it's more like uh, 15 18%. Uh, and he, but he still throws his fastball half the time. Uh, having said that, uh, he's off to a good start this year, but I think once you look a little bit more closely at the numbers, it's not that great. What he's succeeded in doing is he, he's not walking quite as many guys. Uh, and he, I don't think he's ever walked a ton of people. I mean, there were some seasons where, well, yeah, actually he has. Last few seasons, sorry. This season, he's... I mean, of course, it's a, it's a small sample size. That's, that goes without saying. But the question is, you look at this great start he's had, and wow, has he, has he changed something up? Well... It's, uh, sorry, that's an inadvertently horrible pun. Uh, oh God! Wow! Uh, I didn't even try to make it, but I didn't want think people. To so think let me guess, he's throwing the changeup more often. No, I that, there's no. I hadn't even thought about that. Uh, he, he, he's he's throwing it less often the last couple seasons, actually. Now that I look, uh, but but the thing with the Zito is that he hasn't given up any home runs. Yay! You know. That, that's a good thing. The problem is he's actually giving up more fly balls than he did last season. So he's just getting really lucky. So if you look at his FIP, it's about 2.88. Uh, and his TRA, uh, T-E-R-A, as we have it on Fangraphs, is uh, 2.73, uh, which is good. And I think that with, with that, it's mostly that he hasn't given up any uh, home runs, which, again, is good. And his line drive rate's a little bit down. Now, I'm personally skeptical of the idea that pitchers have a lot of control over their line drive rate. Uh, I like to hear Dave talk about that after I'm done here. I, if they do, I think it's uh, much less than they do over their ground ball, fly ball rates, their uh, uh, strikeouts, walks, things like things like that. Uh, but his xFIP is 4.79, and that's just because he's he's giving up like zero. Uh, he hasn't given up a single home run this season, even though he's uh, giving up. He's he's a 40 percent. Forty-seven uh, percent of his uh, balls of play have been uh, have been fly balls. So, uh, yeah, that's that's he's not doing anything different. In fact, he's he's uh, hitters are actually making better contact than they did last last couple seasons against Zito, and and he's striking out. He's got a Horacio or Ramirez like uh, strikeout rate right now. That doesn't mean that he's gonna he's even gonna be more horrible. I'm just saying that he's not doing anything different and good. So people shouldn't take this. Maybe he is going to be better, but those changes, at least from the numbers I've seen, aren't going to be aren't visible. Well, let's see. What's the deal with those line drives, Dave Allen? Is that something that uh, a pitcher has control of year to year, or is there very little correlation? Yeah. Well, this is also a sort of a, a a place where we might have some data quality issues, and this is something that I know that Dave uh, Appleman and Colin um, Colin Wires. discussed. Colin Wires discussed before just. That not only might pitchers not have a good, well, we don't know how good pitchers, how much control they have over a line drive because the line drive classification is a little bit uh, iffy. So a, a, a ball hit um, in one park is called a line drive. It might not be called a line drive somewhere else, or it's called a line drive one time, and it might not be called a line drive another, um, just because these are classifications by uh by people, and so, and I know that actually down in Arizona, we were sort of talking about that, and we were at a game, and we were like, oh, was that a flyer, or was that a line drive? So, um, because of that, you don't see a lot of uh, correlation year to year. Well, if I had my druthers, I would classify everything as a flyer because yeah. it's the most fun word to say. Yeah, and in Zito's case, it's interesting, because the decrease in his uh, line drive rate 
uh, from 2010, from 2009 to 2010, is almost exactly the amount of his increase in fly balls. So the point is that his ground, he still doesn't give up enough ground balls to to have as low strikeout rate as he does. And the guys are getting the ball in the air overall. They're getting just just pretty much, you know, just as many flyners as they ever have against him. They just aren't going over the fence yet. Right, and I think that uh, uh, the, the expectation is that, um, you know, w- except for some, ex- uh, you know, a few cases on either side, uh, you know, maybe like Zach Greinke, who suppresses home runs, or uh, I think probably Brett Myers typically suffers the baleful effects of an inflated home run per fly ball rate. We do see those stabilize out at like around uh, maybe 11 12%. Yeah, that, that might be lower in some parks, like, say, San Francisco or Seattle, but, yeah. Right. Well, okay. Uh, you know, we're getting close to the end of the pod, but before we do, uh, before we do wrap it up, I wanted to appeal to um, Matt Clausen here. Maybe uh, it would be a little bit of an experiment for the pod. Matt, I know that you recently attended, uh, just in the last couple of days here, a game in Toronto. You got to see Zach Greinke pitch for your uh, beloved Kansas City Royals at Toronto. Uh, I was wondering if you might give us uh, something something like a game report or just your uh, sort of reflections upon the game and, and being able to see Zach Greinke pitch, something along those lines. Well, as some people uh, might know, I actually was had tickets to go see Greinke pitch in Toronto last summer. And then uh, my appendix, I got a pet, I came out with appendicitis the day before. So it's, Wait a second. Are I mean, you, okay, I know that you're in your mid-30s area. Uh, is it possible to have appendicitis in your mid-30s? Is that, I guess, what you're saying is it this is. Wasn't, it, yeah, it wasn't tonsillitis. No, I understand, but I, this is scary to me. I thought I was, I thought much like, yeah, like tonsillitis no, and, and the no, uh, the draft for the military, I was beyond any sort of reasonable age where it might become a problem. No, no, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're you start to hurt right in the middle of your abdomen and then it moves to the side a few hours later, go to the emergency room. Okay, what if, what if my wife has just struck me in that very same region? I wouldn't worry about it unless it moves to the side. Okay. Um, the the uh, but like I so this was this experience was it was it was even more fun than having surgery <laughs> um, and sitting in, and sitting and sitting and just uh, sitting naked except for uh, sitting in my underwear in one of those hospital gowns in the emergency room for five hours. Um, the uh, it was fun. I, I would say that uh, maybe it was just because it was a Wednesday afternoon. And you know this is Toronto, a big matchup, Blue Jays Royals. There must have been almost a thousand people there. Uh, it was it was uh, trying to be a really good game. The Royals wanted extra innings. Grinky uh, struck out eight, um, and then Alex Gordon, who'd had a horrible game. And I I'm a big Alex Gordon fan. I'm not even sure why. Maybe it's because I had him on my fantasy team, and I'm still waiting for him. Uh, maybe it's just I'm a contrarian. I'm not saying I think he's going to turn into. You know Evan Longoria this year. Or well, ever. he's been dealt a li- kind of a, a tough hand by his organization too, hasn't he? The yeah. way did they sort of turn on him after he didn't pan out to be well, the best player? Well, it, it's that's a long, complicated story we're gonna have to get into now. I mean, it's long, complicated and not interesting enough to everyone to justify <laughs> going into it. I mean, they called him. They probably they they called him up too early, and then they didn't send him down when he was really struggling his first year. And then they then he got hurt, and they. Uh, were obviously manipulating his service time last year, even though it was terrible, and uh, and then they kind of stuff leaks out in the press that 
I don't know. It doesn't sound good. But but having said that, he had a horrible game. I mean, he just looked totally lost to the plate. I mean, Sean Markham's good, but he's not that good. Uh, and, and then it was typical Royals, right? So they – and I was sitting right behind the uh, <laughs> the, bull, the bullpen uh, in the front row. And, uh, and, like, Juan Cruz looks old enough to be, like, Greg Oden's brother. And uh, <laughs> and there was Farnsworth. And Farnsworth is giant. And, uh, you know, the Toronto fans, you know, again, maybe it was Wednesday afternoon, but I, this is just a Blue Jays fans. You, you, you know, you're usually – you've always been polite. But can you come up with something better than uh, De Jesus, you suck? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty awesome. And maybe those weren't the French French immersion students, but that was, uh, <laughs> you know, after after the, it, it, I mean, it, it got to be funny after the fifteenth time, but more of a laughing at way. So anyway, uh, the, the Royals are up three to two after Alex Gonzalez of all people, who's on a tear. So so, so I said to Royals fans, everybody who thinks you know that Kendall and Pitsednik and Gian are going to keep this up, uh, yeah, Alex Gonzalez has like. I think 27 home runs right now. Yeah. And hit one off Zach, hit a bomb off Greinke. So anyway, so then the Royals blow the lead with it because they refuse to bring in Soria uh, ever. I Although, think it was, to, uh, to be fair, uh, Robinson Tejeda, who didn't give up the runs, looked brilliant. He was awesome, and he should be setting up. But of course, they only, this, at least they brought him in to start the inning and not with two guys on. Uh, which is what they usually do, and then they if they if they bring him in a favorable situation, he has a split problem. So anyway, so the ten, so so then Gordon at least he didn't give up around this. You know, he'd looked terrible at the plate. He'd air mailed an easy throw to first uh, earlier in the game. I mean, he had plenty of time. And it just it was it was almost like Ankiel was playing third. And uh, and he it, it, by the way, watching he and Vincennik both tracking the same fly ball is a comedy treat for all ages. Uh, so anyway, so in the tenth inning. Uh, uh, Scott Downs is really good left your levers up, and uh, I'm sorry to give a recap. And I, I, I talked to other Royals fans about this. I, I thought, and Gordon was up, and, and he's had he has platoon issues. And I thought that that they were going to pinch hit Bloomquist for him, which would have just been the end. I mean, I could see everyone turning on Gordon, and so he basically hits a bomb to straightaway center off of Downs, and it was great. And I didn't even realize what happened for. Him. I was sort of in shock, and then I. A bunch of quiet hosers around me, and I just stood up and applauded like a like a dork. So well, anyway, I was curious was about fun. that. I'm curious because I, you know, I've been to games. I've been to like Red Sox Yankees games at Fenway, and I know that there is some, uh, you know, there's obviously this is a, 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 this is almost a story to rivalry. Yeah, right. Well, that's that's what I'm kind of curious about is the reaction. First of all, that you would have because I, you know, when the Royals do something right, it it almost seems like it happens by accident. And then I know you're a Royals fan, but you're in Toronto. But it doesn't seem like a Torontonian would necessarily take much offense uh, to another another person, you know, if it means that person's having fun. So, was there any sort of uh, bad blood between you and the Torontonians, or were they just like, "Good job, man, you're from Kansas City"? No, they were just quiet. They couldn't figure out who I was. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they know who I think. I just thought, "What's this Royals fan doing? Why is he whipping out his BlackBerry after every inning?" Yeah, uh, well, he is a nerd. And I mean, I don't know. I think, I think there was some anger. There was some definite anger. Uh, I think after the game, I saw somebody jaywalk. Um, I think I might have seen some. I think I might have seen some littering. So there was some bitterness. <laughs> Which in uh, Canada, those are those are high crimes. I mean, that's about as about as bad as it gets. Yes. Okay, all right. Well, the, uh, we uh, I think that we're testing the the limits of credibility at this point. But um, before we leave, I, I want to thank the the pair of doctors here. Thank you very much, Doctor Dave Allen. I, I wish you luck in your uh, in your career in the field of ecology. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, and I should note that when you get two doctors on a podcast like this, all you get is just qualifications and exceptions. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, 
if we can be paired again. <laughs> it's true, I know, it actually forms a, a black hole of self-doubt. <laughs> you, wound, you, you wound me, sir. Yeah, uh, but but the other man who was here was uh, maybe not my enemy as much anymore. His name is Matt Clausen. Thank you, uh, sir. No, wait, when you receive a, uh, a PhD in philosophy, is that a doctor of philosophy of philosophy? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's silly. Yeah, it, it is silly. What is the reason? I, I have... Uh, I have been Carson Sestule, and I will continue to be even after I say goodbye. And this has been another edition of Fangraphs Audio. Audio.